Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Friday, June 12th, we are starting a new series here on Sharper Iron, one that will take us through the Epistle of James. It is titled Wisdom from Above. This brief, sharp epistle has at times been neglected by Lutherans. We love St. Paul. We are right at home in Romans and Galatians, but sometimes we just don't know what to do with the words of St. James. This study aims to help in that task, to hear in the pointed words of St. James, a call to sincere repentance and to living faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Today's study will introduce the epistle as a whole, and we'll dig specifically into James chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us Dr. Curtis Giese. Dr. Giese is professor of religion at Concordia University, Texas, where he also serves as the interim director of the School of Humanities and Social Sciences. He's also the author of the forthcoming commentary on the Epistle of James in the Concordia Commentary Series from Concordia Publishing House. Dr. Giese, welcome to Sharper Iron. Oh, thank you so much, Pastor Apple. It's an honor and a privilege to be with you today. It is good to be doing some Greek with you at 8 a.m. once again, Dr. Giese, as we did when I was your student at Concordia, Texas. So it's it's a joy. Those were joyful times, and this will be a joy as well to, to dig into the Epistle of St. James, one, one that is sometimes neglected among Lutherans, one that sometimes we... We just don't know what to do with because there there are some language there that is different than what we're used to from St. Paul. And yet I, I think I think we'll find James a very helpful author for us. I know as I've I've been reading it multiple times in preparation for this study that I've come to a greater appreciation for what he's got to say. So let's let's do some introductory work on the epistle as a whole. The the name of the epistle is James. This is one of the general epistles in the New Testament, sometimes called the Catholic epistles. Unlike the epistles of St. Paul, which are named for the recipients of, of the letter, these tend to be named after the author. So we've got James here, and the name James in the scriptures is kind of like the name Mary. There's lots of James. So who are we talking about here? Which James is the author of this epistle? Actually, there are five individuals in the New Testament by the name of James. One of the original 12 apostles, James, the son of Zebedee, bore that name. Uh, he is not seriously considered as the author of this epistle because he uh, unfortunately was martyred under King Herod Agrippa in 44 A.D., and none of the others, uh, more minor figures, uh, have been seriously considered as the author. But the only reasonable candidate is James, the half-brother of our Lord Jesus, uh, who became the leader of the Jerusalem church. So he, by far, is the one who is considered the author of this great book of the New Testament. Now, what do we what do we know about James, the half-brother of Jesus? Where, where does he show up in the New Testament? What do we know about him? Yeah, that is a great point to begin with. And just looking at the history of his life shows us the, the mercy and the persistence uh, of our loving God. Uh, the first time that uh, he's mentioned is in a, uh, a list of the family members of Jesus. This uh, appears in two parallel passages in the Synoptic Gospels of Matthew and Mark. And I'll just read one of those. Uh, uh, when Jesus is speaking in his hometown, the the people ask, uh, here's Mark 6, 3, it says, Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James, Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? It says the people took offense at him, at Jesus. We see there that James is listed first here, and also in the other parallel passage, it seems to indicate that after Jesus, James is the eldest of the uh, children there. And uh, 
it, unfortunately, it seems that James and also other family members were unbelieving, rejected Jesus and what he said about himself during uh, his earthly life through the time of the crucifixion. In John chapter 7, for example, uh, it says, uh, his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, uh, that your disciples also may see your works you're doing, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. But then it says, for not even his brothers believed in him. So it seems that the brothers said that uh, in a mocking way to go to Judea, leave here and uh, do your works and speak your words elsewhere. Uh, so there it indicates the rejection that his brothers had for Jesus. And also in another time in Mark 3, it says that a crowd gathered and uh, his family members tried to uh, get him away from the crowd, for they were saying he is out of his mind. You know, a couple of strong texts telling us that family members, it seems also James, rejected Jesus. And then also very definitive at the crucifixion of Jesus, family members of uh, our Lord were not present there except for Mary. And Jesus entrusts his mother to his good friend and apostle John instead of to well, one of the family members, uh, especially the eldest son like James. He was not there not present at all, but rather entrusted mother to John. So very significant indications that James and other family members rejected Jesus throughout uh, the time of Jesus' earthly ministry. But then, as Paul tells us in his great resurrection chapter of, of 1 Corinthians 15, he tells about appearances, resurrection appearances that James made, and there Paul mentions only one individual resurrection appearance, namely to James. And it seems that that was a major, <clears throat> a major mild, a major change for James because uh, shortly after that, uh, text of Acts 1 indicates that Jesus' brothers, apparently also James, were there along with the disciples and Mary and other important women. Uh, in prayer and study, uh, awaiting the gift of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. So it seems that the resurrection greatly changed and convinced James about the truth of what his brother Jesus had said. And then James very quickly, it seems, became the leader of the Jerusalem church and uh, was highly respected. And it's uh, some have argued, and I would tend to agree that it appears that James may have been the leader of early Christianity. You can see this, for example, from Paul. When Paul was uh, beginning his role as apostle, he went to James and also Peter, but to James for affirmation for uh, legitimacy of, of his call and ministry to the Gentiles. And after the third missionary journey, Paul goes to James to report on what happened. Or also when Peter is miraculously released from prison, uh, he tells uh, some Christians, go and tell James what happened. And then also at a very important event called the Apostolic Council in Acts chapter 15, uh, when the, a question arises of how Gentiles fit into uh, Christianity, uh, whether they must, must essentially must become Jewish or not, there, James is the spokesperson who speaks uh, on behalf of early Christians, and a few words are particularly pertinent uh, where James says, it is my judgment, or I judge so-and-so, and he uh, speaks what is a, a proper uh, uh, discussion, uh, uh, judgment of how it is, of what message should be delivered to the Gentiles in the areas where Paul just visited. So, it is very hard to understate the great role that James acquired, but what a great difference from the beginning where he apparently is rejecting Jesus, but our Lord in his grace and mercy pursued James, and he became a great leader of the church, the mother church in Jerusalem, possibly the leader of early Christianity. However, sadly, he was martyred, 64 A.D., it seems, 
there was a time when there was a vacuum of Roman rulership, and this event is actually recorded in the Jewish historian Josephus. And he says, Festus, namely former Roman ruler, was now dead, and Albinus, the incoming ruler, was but upon the road, so he assembled the Sanhedrin of Judges and brought before them the brother James, uh, the brother of Jesus, who is called Christ, whose name was James, and some others of his companions. And when he informed an accusation against them as breakers of the law, he delivered them to be stoned. So that is the uh, sad ending of James, but he nonetheless faithfully proclaimed Christ and led the early church, especially the Church of Jerusalem, for a number of years. So we indeed give thanks to God for the uh, blessed ministry of James. And it seems, again, that the resurrection uh, had such a profound effect in him, and resurrection, new creation, has a significant role in the book that he wrote for us, the blessed epistle of James. Hmm. Uh, the example of Jesus' mercy and grace to his half-brother, James, is quite astounding. And I, I'd never really reflected upon that all that much until your notes and, and preparing for this study. You know, Paul talks about how he was the chief of sinners in First Timothy and all of, I mean, this is a theme in his epistles of how he was a persecutor of Christianity and God showed mercy to him. But we, I don't, I don't think about James in that light. But the same, a very similar thing is very true. He he thought his brother was crazy during during mm -hmm. Jesus' earthly ministry, and and yet that resurrection appearance of Jesus to James not all that different from the resurrection appearance of Jesus to Paul, that had that right. profound effect upon him, and and converted him to Christianity. Now that happened very early on in the history of the church, as you said. James is there with the early church after Jesus' ascension and on the day of Pentecost, he becomes a leader in the Jerusalem church early on. So so James is a Christian before Paul becomes a Christian. And and that gives us maybe a, a bit of a, a hint or a starting place, perhaps, as to how we might date this letter. With Paul's letters, particularly, we just came out of Romans here on Sharper Iron, and, and with the letter to the Romans, there are some very clear indicators within the letter itself that place Paul in Corinth during his third missionary journey. We get a pretty clear picture there of, of when and where that letter was written. When you get to the general epistles, James included, sometimes those, those exact details are lacking, but the fact that we know that James is an early Christian convert and is a, a leader in the Jerusalem church maybe gives us some clues. So about where would we place the letter of James historically, and, and why would we put it there? Many scholars would date the book of James very early. I would be among them, <clears throat> and there's good reason for that. Uh, the epistle of James does not show any antagonism or clear separation with Judaism. Rather, the Christians are still meeting in synagogues, according to James chapter 2, verse 2. There's no mention of any Gentile mission or, or Gentiles really in any significant way. Also, he doesn't speak of the fall of Jerusalem, uh, which otherwise might be assumed if this were after uh, 67 A.D., also, there are rich landowners uh, that he describes uh, in, a, in that area, and after the destruction of Jerusalem in 66 to 70 AD, such rich land, Jewish landowners would not be present anymore. There is not any uh, indication that, that this letter is a response or interaction with the letters or topics of St. Paul. So it seems to be pre-Pauline, and uh, recently before the Jerusalem Council, so many dates, and I would as well, that approximately 48 A.D., very likely, very possibly, the first of the New Testament letters. I'm just going to add one thing as well about the prominence of James and his letter as well. Uh, this is uh, something that, uh, before I came to study James in greater depth, I uh, wasn't so aware of, but there is a, a different sequence of the New Testament books in, any, in many early Greek manuscripts and also in the earliest printed Greek New Testaments, such as Horton, West, Gunter, Tischendorf. 
an original, an early sequence of the New Testament books has the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then Acts, and then the Catholic epistles, beginning with James, and then the last of those, Jude, so that the brothers of our Lord, James, half-brothers of our Lord, James and Jude, are kind of like pillars of those, of that collection, and then after that come the letters of Paul. So that's a very early sequence and an indication of the great prominence and respect that James had in early Christianity by that sequence of the New Testament books. I, I didn't realize that that was the case, but that is a, a very a very interesting thing to consider concerning the prominence of James. And as you mentioned, he was the brother of Jude, the the writer of, and you you wrote a commentary on Second Peter and Jude as well. So Jude is a brother of James, half brother of Jesus as well. That's the same. Just to make those further connections within the New Testament, you mentioned that that James is likely very early, perhaps the earliest writing we've got in the New Testament pre-Paul. Now, this this may get a, a bit beyond the scope of our James study, but but when you when you said that that James is not writing in response to Paul, he actually writes before Paul, it just it it brought to my mind, well, does Saint Paul, when he writes, and and, and this may be a question that we we can't give a definitive answer to, but I'm curious if, if you did any research, if you've thought about it, does St. Paul know of James when he writes this, this epistle? Is there, a, is there a, any sort of interaction from that direction? Well, certainly <clears throat> Paul knew James because he had sought him out and spoken with him uh, regarding his apostleship and mission to the Gentiles, but I do not see a clear, clear indication that there is intentional reliance of Paul upon James. Certainly, they spoke of the the common theology, the common proclamation of Jesus Christ and what he has done, and also uh, matters of how one is saved by the grace of God, by his gracious intervention. And Paul also speaks clearly of how deeds flow from uh, the gift of faith in our Lord. So as much general commonality in that, but there doesn't appear to be clear intentional interaction or reaction by Paul in response to James, nor, of course, uh, James in response to Paul, because, uh, of course, I'm convinced that James comes first before the Pauline letter. So, no, I do not see intentional interaction, direct interaction between the two. I, I think that's, I mean, it's just worth mentioning or thinking about because, and, and we'll get into this in, in future texts in the book of James, but some some in the history of the church have tried to pit James and Paul against each other in, in one direction or another. And just to recognize that they, they might not have, like, James comes before Paul, and Paul's not sort of writing against James or something like that. He's he's writing to specific audiences with specific goals in mind. And so he's not, when he writes, for example, in Romans concerning faith alone saves, he's not writing against what James is saying. He's writing with a different goal in mind. And it's it's just important, I think, to keep that sort of context in mind, lest we do make that mistake, fall into that error of somehow seeing these two men, these two, two apostles in contradiction to each other. That's not the, the right way to look at it. And I think that that sort of context is is helpful just to have in the back of our minds so that we don't make make a mistake like that. So James writes this epistle. Now, as we said earlier, when Paul writes, he's often writing to a specific congregation or to a specific individual. This letter from St. James, who's he writing to? Who's he got in mind? Well, the first verse tells us that he is writing to the 12 tribes that are in the diaspora. Uh, that is... Uh, needs to be unpacked. The 12 tribes initially at first glance, oh, those of Jewish background, uh, and it, it appears, as you read in the context of the letter, that it appears to be written to those who are Jewish Christians. Uh, there's much mention of the uh, uh, law uh, in Holy Scripture, emphasis on monotheism, Old Testament theology. There is uh, much mention of Old Testament figures, so that seems to be the case. However, the term 12 tribes uh, is uh, it refers to 
Israel, Old Testament Israel, and that term is very much for a people of faith, not uh, a, a group of biological descent, but uh, emphasis is on a people of faith. And at this time, as James writes, the 12 tribes as an entity do not exist as, a, as 12 tribes. Since 722 B.C., uh, those tribes were scattered, disseminated, did not exist as an entity. I'd rather, we see already in the Old Testament, in prophets such as Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Jeremiah, those prophets speak about a messianic end times age when uh, the church, when Israel will be restored in the coming Messiah. So when James here speaks about a seemingly restored 12 tribes of Israel restored, uh, he is thereby referring to the age of the Messiah that has already come and that uh, um, the restoration of the church that has come in the saving work of Christ. So already he speaks about uh, an end times kingdom of God having arrived in Christ and already of God's saving work. But as we often see in, in Scripture and also in our, our lives, there is a, a not yet uh, of God's saving work, much to be, uh, there is yet a completion that we await of Christ's saving work, because he says these 12 tribes are in the diaspora. That is a technical term for the, uh, the dispersion, the scattering of those of Israelite Jewish background among the nations. So already here in this first verse, we see the tension of Christian life, of the blessing of uh, new life, the gift of resurrection, new creation in Christ that's already given to us. But yet we live in this age uh, where uh, we know that Christ's promises are not yet fulfilled. There's still struggle, struggle and tension and so on. So this verse, this first verse already that identifies recipients is already full of fantastic theology. Mm. You know, you, you've talked a couple of times about the resurrection, about the coming of Christ, and how that had a profound influence on James. And I'll, I'll be honest that I I never really, in, in reading the epistle of James, I've, I've never really looked for that before, this influence of the resurrection upon James, and and the thought that, you know, that's influencing what he writes. So I'm looking forward to, to going through this epistle and seeing that as a theme. I, I really think that'll that'll help keep the epistle centered and prevent us from maybe going off into places that, that we shouldn't go off into. So, so we've got the audience in place. One of the things as you, as you read James that becomes pretty apparent, I think just through a straight read through at one time is that James is not structured in the same way that St. Paul often structures his epistles. You often see a very logical progression from one place to the next. You can can trace where Paul's been and where he's going. When you read St. James, that's not always so easy to do. And I don't that's not a criticism, but it's just it it seems different. So what what is James structure? Is there a, a move from one to the next that that I'm just missing or or maybe how's James laying out his epistle? That is a great question and something that Christians have noticed throughout the centuries, that there's a difference of the way that uh, Paul structures his letters versus James. And actually, James has some overlap with Jesus in the way that uh, he goes from one topic to another in the Sermon on the Mount. There's a great deal of overlap between James and the Sermon on the Mount. But just to return to James versus Paul, so James doesn't really demonstrate the sequential argumentation or logical pro progression of a Pauline letter, but he demonstrates, I guess, what you call a consistency of, of thought or concerns that he brings up throughout this letter in a more loosely structured work that's more so characteristic of Jewish wisdom literature. And again, just to bring up the Sermon on the Mount of, again, Jesus speaks about uh, those who are going through uh, various situations, uh, poor in spirit, those are persecuted, but yet they are indeed blessed uh, by God uh, in his great mercy. And that is an emphasis of James. So in James, chapter 1 functions rather like a table of contents in which he introduces 
his topics, his thoughts, he concerns, but then in the rest of the book, he revisits and develops uh, these topics as he goes through the rest of the letter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's a that's going to be a good way, I think, to look at this this short epistle is a table of contents and then the development of those thoughts. And and so to let James speak on his own terms, not try to fit him into the, the categories that St. Paul does in the way that he structures, but to let James speak for himself is going to be important. Now, finally, before we take our break, then, Dr. Giese. Let's let's just consider the we're going to look at verses one through four of the first chapter in in detail on the other side of the break. But before we do that, let's just consider the epistle as a whole. What what are the major themes that James is going to pick up and what is his overall purpose in writing this epistle? Well, as mentioned, uh, resurrection, new creation is indeed a. an emphasis, perhaps not in the amount of space and and verses that you might expect, but it is a foundation and basis from which he mentions that, from which he develops his his thought. And just know about the history of James. As James, before James had that resurrection appearance from Jesus, many things in his life were falling apart. For example, it's likely that Father Joseph passed away. And then... uh, James saw his brother Jesus. He thought he was out of his mind doing uh, such crazy things and then uh, crucified as a Roman criminal. And then he saw certainly the Roman occupation, signs of revolt. Many things were falling apart. So just uh, uh, so many things that uh, uh, were degrading. Then he sees his brother raised, resurrected, he realizes that is the great hope. There is restoration, new creation. That is uh, the hope that he is given. And now he portrays that in his letter. And I'm convinced that the central verses of the book of James that portray this, the, a gracious God and a hope and a resurrection, new creation, is in James chapter 1, 17 and 18, and also the Lutheran father Melanchthon, centers on these verses as he speaks about them in the uh, Apology of the Augsburg Confession. Uh, Those verses are, James says, every gracious act of giving and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no change or shadow uh, cast by variation. In accordance with his will, he gave birth to us by the word of truth so that we are kind of first fruit of his new creations. So he speaks here about God being the source of every gift, and we notice here the source and the trajectory of grace coming down from above, just like manna came down by God's mercy to feed his people in the Old Testament, so Jesus is like the bread of life that came down from above, and he is the light uh, of God. We come down from the Father. He is the light of the world. And then we see in James' words, in accordance with his will, namely totally by an act of God's intervention and grace, not our coming to him, he gave birth to us. Uh, that is, where there was not life, he gave birth to us, and here by the word of truth, James says, by the gospel. And then look at that, we are first fruit of his new creations. So we have that gift of resurrection, new creation, in an initial way. In other words, as Paul would say, we are baptized into his death and resurrection already. So there is an already of that new life, and we wait for the completion, the fulfillment of that. So that is the basis from which James begins, and then he anticipates that as resurrection, new creation people, that that will show in our actions and our deeds and our hopes that we manifest in our lives. And James is very concerned when he doesn't see that in certain areas as he addresses these Christians. So uh, he, he indeed proclaims the great gifts that they have and anticipates that they will use these gifts as God intends, and he states his concern in certain areas when they do not. Not just an uh, overview of, of the theme, uh, main theme of, of James and how he proceeds from that base. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're going to take a short break, but we will be right back. Please stick around.
Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide KFUO. It's Friday, June 12th, and we are studying the book of James. James 1, verses 1 through 4 is our particular text for today. We've got Dr. Curtis Giese from Concordia University, Texas, with us this morning, author of a forthcoming commentary on the book of James from Concordia Publishing House. And Dr. Giese, prior to the break, we, we laid out, you laid out, you're doing all the heavy lifting for me this morning. I really appreciate it. You laid out for us very well the background information on James, the half-brother of Jesus, who he was, where we see him in the scriptures, the great mercy and grace that our Lord Jesus Christ showed to him in pursuing him, even in the unbelief that he showed toward his half-brother during the earthly ministry, but then coming to him after his resurrection, converting him, James becoming this great leader in the early church, writing this epistle. So let's go ahead and, and dig into our particular text for today, James chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. I'm going to go ahead and read it for us this morning. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That is the opening of James' epistle, James 1, verses 1 through 4. Now, Dr. Giza, we, we talked a little bit already about the opening verse, because in the opening verse, we, we learn about the audience to whom James is writing. But one word in there that I don't think we've touched on that much is the way James names himself. James doesn't name himself the brother of Jesus. Rather, he names himself a servant, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. What's the significance of James calling himself a servant? Yeah, there he mentions his role and relationship in relation to here the father and the son. So the emphasis is on his servant role, and he focuses on um, God, focuses on the saving work of, of Christ. He, is, he serves them, and the major thing is that he's not a biological half-brother of Jesus, but rather his role in relation to service uh, to uh, the Father and the Son. And of course, he mentioned the Spirit in his epistle as well, so his servant role in relation to them. Mm-hmm. Now, just as a, a maybe a, a recap on this side of the break, he, he says he's writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Is he only thinking about those who are ethnically Jews, those who can trace their lineage to Abraham, or is it a bit broader in the way that he's writing? It appears uh, from the contents of James that it's, <clears throat> for the most part, those who are Jewish background, now Christian, but uh, as mentioned, since that term 12 tribes or Israel is a, a, for a term for a people of faith, and not an ethnic, ethnic group, that Gentiles could be among them as well whom he addresses. For example, it's known that in the Jewish synagogues, uh, there were typically those who were known by the technical term of God-fearers, those who are of Gentile background, but who are participating in the synagogue, but not had, had not become fully Jews. But also, there's mention of person Rahab in the book of James as well, one of uh, non-Israelite background, who nonetheless became a part of God's people. So indications that there very well could be those of Gentile background whom he was addressing and who would be the original recipients, those who would hear this book be read in the uh, gathering of God's people at the synagogue. So, and then one one more note before we leave this, and and honestly, I'd I'd forgotten this until I, I glanced into the Greek text. The name James, as it comes to us in English, 
is actually related to the Hebrew name Jacob. So why, why is that an important connection to make here? You've got James or Jacob writing to 12 tribes. What's, what's that connection? That is a very important thing to emphasize. You may recall that Jacob, otherwise known as Israel, spoke to the 12 tribes, especially certainly before his passing. He spoke words of blessing, indeed words of concern as well, to the, to the 12 and he emphasized the, the tribe of Judah from which the Savior would come. So he spoke about the, uh, the coming Savior, the blessing, the incredible rescue uh, that would come through them. Here, the new Jacob speaks to the 12 tribes as well, the Savior having come, and the great blessing through that promised Messiah. Uh, so now this Jacob speaks to the restored 12 tribes, restored Israel, who have been uh, brought together into one family, one kingdom, through the saving work of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the New Testament equivalent of Jacob. Now James or Jacob speaking to the restored 12 tribes in these end times as they anticipate Christ's second coming. So, I mean, you're, I think you're, you're referencing what, Genesis 49 there. Is that, is that what you've got in mind when, when Jacob addresses his sons before his death? That's indeed correct, yes. So, so I'm, I'm trying to—I wonder if there's—and I didn't go back and read Genesis 49 in, in preparation, but just the, the situation that Jacob is—that he has just come to Egypt with his family— and he, I, I would think he knows what's coming for his family. The Lord told his grandfather, yeah, grandfather Abraham previously that his descendants would be enslaved in a foreign land for a long time. And I think, I mean, I think Jacob probably knows that. And maybe that's even in the back of his mind as he's telling his, his sons and speaking forward to his tribes for this slavery, anticipating a deliverance ultimately through the son of Judah, Jesus Christ. And now here you've got New Testament Jacob, James, writing to 12 tribes who have seen the son of Judah, Jesus Christ, die and rise for their salvation, for their deliverance. And now they're waiting for his return in a time of, I don't, I don't think we would call it a time of slavery, like the people of Israel would, were about to experience after Jacob gave that blessing, but a time of, of exile, a time of dispersion, a time of, uh, well, as he's going to bring out here, a time of, of trial, waiting for the Lord's return. I think it's just a, I'm not sure how far, how far we want to take some of those parallels, but it is an interesting, an interesting thing to consider the, that, like those, those two things and how Jacob prepares his sons, his tribes for the coming savior. And now James, New Testament, Jacob, prepares the people of God for the coming of Jesus on the last day. It's very, it's very striking, very striking to consider that. And I don't know that I would have caught that. Yeah, those are some very significant and powerful parallels uh, that bring up that, well, actually, they're, they're obvious in Scripture, and those original readers are, could not avoid noticing that, as the name Jacob, uh, James, is the very first word and then suddenly 12 tribes, it would very obviously come into their minds. Ah, New Testament Jacob, as he speaks of the saving work of God, anticipating the coming of the Messiah. So they're, they're now on the New Testament side of that, anticipating the second coming of the Messiah, but also that James, Jacob, emphasizes very much the saving work, the acts of kindness already done. Uh, by a gracious God. So incredible parallels as these people with Old Testament heritage are reminded of the gifts that they already have in Christ and how James anticipates that that will manifest itself in their lives. So yeah, fantastic parallels and very powerful imagery that James uses. Mm. Yeah, indeed. And that's I, I just to mention it here, and we'll see this as we go through the book of James, that he he brings up some of the most vivid images in his preaching throughout the book. He's, he's constantly painting pictures 
for his hearers, for his readers that, that just stick in your mind. And we'll, we'll see that throughout. So James then gets into the content. He's, he's greeted the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And he's preparing them to live in this time, awaiting for their Lord's coming. And he starts by, verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, this is, I mean, this is a theme that we see elsewhere in the New Testament throughout the Scriptures, that when we meet trials, as Christians, we have joy. How, how is James preaching this here? Yeah, it's... it's unique when you first look at this it seems counterintuitive that in the midst of trials there would be joy but this is a new era in christ uh, as, me- as mentioned already this is the uh, era of resurrection and new creation a gift of new life where, where there was not life before and in these blessings in the context of blessing in christ Trials do not end in detriment for God's people, but rather here James redefines trials as the testing of one's faith. And with the testing of one's faith, there is great benefit. And uh, take a look in just a little bit at what James further says in chapter 1, verse 12. But uh, after testing and trials, uh, James says we look forward to the crown of life. So there is indeed blessing in the midst of trials. There is blessing in Christ by the anticipated great end, uh, the great day of resurrection that one anticipates. But let's take a look at that that image of testing that James uses there, that word that he employs, dokimion. That's a word for the refining of precious metals like gold and silver. Now, when those metals are found in their uh, raw form. There are lots of impurities, and when fire is applied, those impurities are burned away. And so James likely has the image here that the, the trials and the testings in our life have a, a usage, a benefit of stripping away what is not so valuable, and instead re- refining our faith. And here the emphasis of of faith is not in itself, but rather in its its object of, of faith clinging all the more tightly to the promises of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we so often have the, the things that we look to for identity, security, and meaning in life outside of Christ, but the trials in our lives tend to remove those, and instead we look all the more uh, clearly to our Lord Jesus and his promises, because those are the things that uh, most strongly uh, are, are those which remain and those which uh, can help us in time of difficulty. So here, trials have a great benefit of refining our faith. Now, this indeed, uh, as James uses the image of fire, uh, an intense crucible of trials, that image of fire is very accurate because it trials, difficulties in life, uh, James does not downplay the reality, the intensity, the difficulty of them, but rather he looks beyond the difficulty to the benefit that uh, they ultimately can bring by stripping away the things that are not so beneficial for us, and rather uh, look to the refining of our faith and that testing. There's indeed great benefit, and we cling all the more to our Lord Jesus. I just want to bring up the the example of Abraham, and James indeed brings up Abraham richly in this epistle. But in the, the testing of Abraham in the situation of Isaac, it, uh, it's a, it was going to be the case apparently that Isaac would be sacrificed, but uh, Abraham nonetheless goes through that. Here's the testing of, of Abraham, but of course, uh, the angel of the Lord stops him. I mean, rather, in this event of testing, Abraham is led to see what God would do. Rather, the son, Jesus Christ, would be sacrificed. There, a, a ram is presented and said, God will provide the, the sacrifice. So in that event of testing, Abraham sees all the more clearly God's loving plan of providing a Savior 
and God's grace in that event of testing. And that's what indeed James is presenting here as well. In the events of trials, our faith is refined, and we are led to see all the more clearly the kindness, the mercy, the loving plan of our God in the saving work of Jesus Christ. Mm, that's a that is a beautiful image that in the in the testing of these of these hardships these trials god is leading us to see more clearly who he is and what he is doing for us in his son jesus christ and the example of abraham in genesis chapter 22 is a fantastic one i mean even even there in genesis 22 that abraham sees the lord will provide or you could translate the hebrew there the lord will see that's a different conversation for a different day i suppose but but yeah that's i mean that's that's just a wonderful example of where Abraham, through this trial, is led to see more clearly what God is doing in his son, Jesus Christ, so that his, his faith is refined, the impurities are burned away, his focus is all the more clearly on, on his son, on the son, Jesus Christ. Uh, Dr. Giese, before we, oh man, I want to talk about verse four, but before we leave that, just when James talks about these trials, he says trials of various kinds, does he, does he have in mind just trials in general, the the evil that would assault us in this life, does he have more specifically in mind the trials that Christians face because they are Christian? Which which of those does he have in mind more? That's a point of significant debate on that verse. And as I've been blessed to look closely at the book of James, I think there James means all the above. So any of the difficulties that come in life, including the challenges that, that arise because one is a Christian. Here, I think that James is being very inclusive regarding the trials that come in life. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. It does seem that he's got a, a, broader, a broader understanding here of the word trial than, than sometimes is used. It would certainly include those trials that we face because we are Christian, but perhaps a bit broader here. He, he then, in verse 4, he, he brings these thoughts together. He says, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, Dr. Giese, you've, you've brought out the influence that Jesus' resurrection has had on James and its importance for this epistle. And you've also talked about the, the matter of the Christian faith being something that is already ours, but there's also something that is soon to come that's not yet. And it seems that the way James draws things together here in verse four with this matter of being perfect and complete and lacking in nothing is a good example of those two realities put together for the Christian. That's indeed correct. So we see at the end of verse three that uh, the testing of your faith produces perseverance or steadfastness. And that's an important trait that is a gift through that. And by the way, just a on an additional note of perseverance as a result of trial, James in chapter 5 also brings up Job. And at the end there he says, And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful also through the situation of Job. So there we see more how in the midst of trials, Job was led to see and it's an example for all who know about Job to see how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And we see that also in, in the context of the perseverance, steadfastness that Job was led to have. But then verse 4, as you indicate to look at, here it speaks, James speaks about the work of perseverance or steadfastness. So he introduced perseverance in verse 3, and now he speaks about its work and that it's to have its perfect work, and actually in the translation of in the commentary app, so that you might be complete and whole, lacking in nothing. Now, that, that Greek word that uh, here I translate complete, uh, or, or whole, that's the second word there, it can have a dual meaning. It can mean perfect, but in this life, of course, we do not reach perfection. That, uh, that's not... Uh, something on this side of eternity, but as James uses that word, complete, in the rest of his letter, it seems to mean a congruence of faith and deeds, uh, so that 
uh, the faith that one is given our Lord Jesus Christ, that one's life and actions uh, demonstrate that. There is a, a, an agreement of faith and, and deeds. Uh, but he also, uh, it, James, when he speaks about perseverance having its perfect work, Christians have the hope that on the other side of eternity, in the day of resurrection, we will be freed from sin. We will be perfect. So it could be that James has a, in mind a dual meaning that uh, perseverance has its work in us, that we are complete and whole in Jesus Christ, but our hope is not what happens inside of ourselves. But we look forward to that day with the other meaning of that word, Greek word teleos, that we will be perfect, freed from sin. So again, it could be that tension of already and not yet or already and soon to come, that we have many blessings in Christ, including the blessing that perseverance brings, that we're complete and whole. But we look forward to that day when also the uh, work of Christ be fulfilled, when we will be freed from sin and perfect on the day of uh, Christ's resurrection. Dr. Curtis Giese is professor of religion at Concordia University, Texas, also the author of a forthcoming commentary on the book of James from Concordia Publishing House. When's that commentary coming out, Dr. Giese? It appears in the fall of next year. So the Wonderful. final the final draft is just about done, about to uh, send it off in the next few weeks, but then it goes through the editorial process as well, and then uh, toward the end of next year. So I give thanks for uh, blessing our Lord and uh, leading me through the work and study. And there's so much more depth in James and what, what I've covered, but I look forward to that commentary coming out. Wonderful. God be praised. Thank you for, for joining us this morning, for setting the stage for the rest of this study on the epistle of St. James. It's going to be a, a great journey through. There's so many themes that we've touched on today that will come back up. James writing to the 12 tribes, New Testament Jacob, preparing the people of God for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the son of Judah, on the last day that we would have joy in the midst of trials. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again next week.